All right. Uh, welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. I am your guest, Robert Keim. And we're your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 125. Robert Keim is a graduate from the University of California of San Diego with a bachelor's degree in electrical engineering. Robert has an extensive experience in a wide variety of fields, including analog design, firmware development, digital signal processing, power management, motor control, digital camera design, low noise PCB layout, system integration, design for harsh environments, neural networks, and software defined radios. Robert is the technical director for All About Circuits. So, Robert, what don't you do? <laughs> there, there are quite a few things. So, I, I've been fortunate um, in my professional experience and also with All About Circuits, I've been fortunate in having the opportunity to do a wide variety of uh, design work, analysis work, testing and development. So, it keeps me interested. I don't like to be uh, confined uh, within a a very small intellectual space. Yeah, that's that's a pretty uh, impressive background there. That was uh, quite a quite a mouthful of, uh, worth of uh, worth of stuff you've done for sure. Yeah, no, it's. I mean, a, a lot of this is from one. Uh, I worked for a defense contractor, and and uh, we did a wide variety. We had a wide variety of projects, and I would just go from one to the next, and it seemed like every one was something different, and it was great. I mean, I learned so much because. Uh, I was always doing new things, and there wasn't a lot of, it, it wasn't a, a excessive supervision, let's say. It was kind of, here's the project, make it work. And, you know, you learn a lot when you have to learn things on your own. Totally. So is there anything else that um, you want to... Um, well, despite that long list of uh, engineering activities, I, I also am uh, a professional copy editor and a professional writer. And actually identify now more as a writer, as a, as a language professional, than as an engineer, though I do both. And that's how I became involved with All About Circuits, uh, the website. Uh, I started as a writer for them, and then everyone sort of realized that uh, there was another role waiting for me. So I became a technical editor, um, helping to improve the technical accuracy of all the articles published on the site, and then became the technical director. And now I manage, help to manage the contributors, help to ensure technical accuracy in all the publications. Uh, I'm also the lead technical writer. So... Uh, you know, if anyone visits the site, you'll see that I have a large, long, long list of articles that I've written for All About Circuits. So I, I kind of st really stumbled across a position that allows me to combine not only my engineering skills, uh, but also my, my skills as a language professional. Cool. So I think the topic this uh, for this podcast is going to be the role of open source information in the electrical engineering community. Yeah, it's it's something that uh, that I work with a lot. Uh, you know, being involved with all about circuits and and uh, managing the content, writing content. Uh, you know, all the content is is freely available, and design files are made freely available. Firmware is made freely available. So it's something that uh, we think about a lot and that we interact with a lot. This issue of well, there's value in this intellectual property. There's value in this knowledge. But we want to make this knowledge and, and this design information available to everyone for free. Uh, but then, you know, you still need to generate income somehow. So it's, it's an interesting concept, this idea of making information, uh, even design information that po potentially involved many hours of, of labor, making that freely available, but also you know, maintaining the financial integrity of an organization. 
So I guess the first good question will be is what does open source mean to you? Now, this is a question I think for all of us. Yes, I, I agree. It's, it's a question I think for anyone who's involved in the prototyping movement, who's involved in helping uh, hobbyists and you know, young engineers develop their own designs and uh, improve their design skills. Uh, what does it mean to me? Well, open source, I think, is typically associated more with the software world. And I don't write software. I'm not a software person at all do firmware, low-level firmware design, not software. So to me, open source isn't uh, really, and I isn't related to this idea of, well, I'm going to write a bunch of code and make it available to everyone, and they can uh, modify it and do whatever they want with it and compile it and what have you. To me, open source means knowledge that's freely available, including knowledge that, in, that originates from labor, um, such as uh, writing... Uh, firmware module or even designing a schematic. So to me, open source means the idea, the conviction that uh, there's inherent value in making information and knowledge available to people anywhere in the world for free. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. Um, I, I view open source as not as, oh, I can go and copy that, but more of a, oh, I want to see how that thing Absolutely. works. And so I can learn about it and incorporate it into my project. Right. I mean, when I design a schematic and I write an article about it for all about circuits and I make the design files available, um, you know, the idea isn't, oh, someone's going to take this and duplicate it and manufacture it and make a bunch of money. I mean, I guess that could happen, but it's extremely unlikely. Um, you know, what's in my mind is, well, if someone really wants to learn, I've got this article text here that I, I try to explain things clearly and try to focus on some interesting details. But in the end, the person has to interact with this knowledge, has to interact with this design. This is how you really learn. It's the feedback cycle of first you receive, but then you have to produce. So then you receive again and you refine what you've produced. And it's a cycle that eventually leads to true acquisition of knowledge. So when I make those design files available, that's... Uh, my attempt to, to give the reader the ability to really incorporate that knowledge, to really reach uh, true understanding of the material because it allows them to interact directly uh, with the manifestation that I have created of this particular concept. I, I, I really like that. Um, I think I think that puts a lot more of the uh, the emphasis on the knowledge and the understanding as opposed to just purely execution, because uh, if it is just execution, then in effect, you're just providing a kit in a way. And there's nothing wrong with that. But uh, a kit sort of has boundaries that it that it fits within and it, and it exists as as that one item, whereas like just providing knowledge, like Parker was saying, you can you take that and you explore that and you put that into your own usage. So I, I really like the way that you you put yeah, it. Yeah, I think you expressed it really well, too, when you say, you know, the difference between understanding and creating versus execution, you know, and in this in, in the current environment that we have, there are uh, a wide variety of resources that will help someone to execute. You know, it's basically this the step-by-step, -step, or you can download a reference design from TI and copy it, or, um, you know, or you can buy a, a kit that is, is maybe still involves a little bit of design or maybe not much design at all. But there, there are many ways to execute. But kind of my mission, uh, and to a large extent what All About Circuits focuses on as well, is that we don't want to just provide a path to execution. We want to provide understanding, knowledge, uh, growth, so that 
the reader so that the people who are looking for this information become designers themselves and not just imitators, not just people who follow directions. So you, you touched a bit on it earlier, but um, like, do you think that open source projects can be you know, long-term financially successful or do you think this is just a social movement and is it more about bringing knowledge and f that functionality to the community? Well, it's certainly you know, the ideal is to bring knowledge and functionality to the community. But we live in the real world. You know, people like me who write articles, we have to eat too. Um, and uh, so we have, and, and furthermore, I don't really believe in this idea that really excellent material or excellent content or excellent knowledge can be had completely for free. You know, that we all have to live, we all have to, we all have only so many hours in the day. Um, and then people who have, you know, the best knowledge and or who have, you know, truly reliable knowledge and reliable skills. Well, you know, we usually have to go to college and college costs a lot of money, too. So there's always money involved. I think that the interesting uh, aspect of this commitment to open source is is the commitment to make knowledge available for free, but also the commitment to try to be creative in producing the income that we need to sustain the movement and trying to be creative and figuring out how to bring in financial resources for the benefit of the community, but without burdening the community, especially those who are not able to pay or who are in a different country where the economy is different. Uh, you know, so that that's, it, there's a delicate balance there between maintaining financial integrity and making information freely and readily available to everyone who wants it. So do you think, I might be jumping the gun a little bit here, but uh, what do you think the future of open source looks like? Does it look more like uh, a, a more thriving um, community environment? I think the future of open source, I you know, maybe this isn't really idealistic, but I think the future of open source is more or less what it's gradually becoming right now, which is groups of people who are committed to it and who have the knowledge and who have the skills um, and are, are ready and willing to make this information available to anyone, anywhere. Uh, but the funding has to come from other sources. And well, the fact is, people are not going to be manufacturing integrated circuits in their garage. Um, they're not going to be uh, fabricating sophisticated printed circuit boards in their garage. There are there are inevitably organizations that will have to make things and sell them at a profit. And so I think that it, it's kind of like the way that a government subsidizes a university. You know, governments typically have quite a bit of money, and one of the better things that they do with it is a subsidized university, so that people who don't have so much money can learn and become educated and skillful. So I think that those corporations out there need to embrace this movement as well. They need to make a commitment to support it financially. And I think everyone benefits in the end, but you know they have to be convinced perhaps that, uh, that this is something that's worth their commitment, that's, that's worth an investment of financial resources on their part so that other people can pursue the open source ideal. Very cool, very cool. Um, okay, so... Uh... I, I, next question we have on here is uh, version control for PCBs. Uh, Parker, you want to you want to take this one? Yeah, actually, I was going to backpedal a little bit on that open source projects for long term financial success because um, of uh, it, it. It's if you're if you're a maker out there and you're doing an open source project, 
it kind of this is from my experiences it only really works if you have a really niche project because like if you take let's for the example the arduino project um the software is only built by the community and it's supported by the financial success of selling the hardware um which is also open source but then you have clones and stuff like that that are they're they those companies that are making the clones aren't really driving um the software development but it's the people who buy those clones and then go oh i need to you know give back to the community or find a bug and you know report it and stuff like that yeah, I think there there are are several dimensions there, and in the end, I, I think what it comes down to is that a variety of people are involved in maintaining this movement, and like you said, even the users to an extent, even perhaps a user who's still learning, still a student, doesn't mean that they can't contribute to the success of the movement. Correct. And you just you gave a perfect example: find a bug. Well, you might be a, a you know in your first year of college, you can still find a bug, and uh, and you report that bug, and that could help a thousand people you know so i uh you know there are there are organizations that have quite a lot of money and they certainly have a role but at the same time everyone has a role in in supporting this movement and helping it to remain viable in the long term correct yeah so next question was uh version control for pcbs because um how version control for a let's say open source project works compared to say an open source software project that's an interesting question i i think to an extent there's a, a pretty large gap that separates pcb version control from software version control i mean version control with software is a pretty fundamental critical uh, aspect of the development process i think with pcbs uh it often is is less critical i mean for one thing you generally don't go through so many versions of a pcb in many cases i think maybe only one if you do a good job the first time um, but if we're talking about making design files available to the public and then a certain design gets adapted um, by different people for different purposes with minor modifications or major modifications, I, I think in the end it would be difficult to control something like that. I don't know, like with GitHub, I don't know, is, is, does GitHub have a, a platform for, for hardware or is it only software? It, it does hardware in the sense of it will version control the files you give it. Um, cause that's the thing about PCBs is it's really a lot of visual stuff, like where parts are placed and how the schematic is laid out. Um, I guess you could do kind of like, cause the th big thing with version control for software is seeing the changes in how the lines of code have changed. Um, and what, what's been added, what function was removed or changed. Um, but you don't really have that with PCBs. I guess you can do like you know, netless changes and stuff like that. But yeah, it's not really a, um, a place for it on something like GitHub besides just storing your files. Yeah. Well, and, and GitHub handles it like code. I, I Park and I have actually, we, we've, we've kind of mentioned this before where, you know, uh, it seems like there's, there's general ideas on how to uh, revision code and, and people kind of stick to some paradigms out there. But when it comes to hardware, they just kind of make a hardware file and throw their boards in there and just, it's sort of, it's a little bit of like good luck uh, with it. So, uh, you know, when it comes down to something like that, I, I think probably your best bet is to just, you know, keep, keep a version in the, the 
title of the uh, of the files, whatever your PCB and schematic is, and then wherever you can write notes. If you ever roll a rev, you know, just at least write some notes describing what's different. Yeah, um, typically because I I use GitHub for my stuff um, for my hardware projects, and usually I will. It, they have a release function, and a when I you know get a board made i just click release and then that's the files i send off to get made um there was a i don't i don't recall the name um but there was a uh github like website that does like like get like uh gerber differences mm. um i think there's a company called cadlab that does revision control for like only eagle boards, so like you can see the differences and how the traces are laid out and stuff. Um, Will it actually highlight the difference between the two? I think so, I, but it only works for eagle. That's pretty cool, actually. Um, I think Altium's got some stuff like that too, but yeah, it, it's 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 a difficult problem. It is. I don't know if there's you know if we really have the tools that we need for that at this moment at least not widely available but th at the same time I mean, honestly in my opinion there's not as much need for it especially with the the smaller pcbs i mean if you're designing a motherboard that's kind of a different story but you know i think that the audience that we're talking about right now we generally are not designing motherboards we're designing wearables and iot devices and sensors and um processor boards and whatnot so you know the amount of design information contained in a schematic like that it can't really be compared with you know potentially the length of a code project of a of a firmware uh, project for that board, so I I think in a lot of cases the version control, the adaptation, the modification can be done fairly manually, and I think that can be effective. Yeah, that's what Stephen was talking about. Like basically, for every release, you have a change log that you've updated. Right. Yeah, but but that ends up being a a really right. manual process, which is fine. You just have to stay on top yeah. of it. Um, how do you collaborate multiple engineers on a single PCB? Well, uh, that is a tough one. I, I mean, from my professional experience, it's not really done. And not that it can't be done, but I don't, I don't know that it's the most effective way to produce a good PCB. Um, you know, I know for myself, when I get really involved in, a, in designing a schematic or also laying out a board, you know, I'm pretty intensely immersed in that project it's kind of you know you kind of have to really submerge yourself in the identity of that board and its its functionality and its purpose it's um it's it's an intense connection that i use you know when i'm designing and um i don't know uh, for me personally i don't think that i could really tolerate uh quote interference from another engineer now design review <laughs> design review is a different story i i'm the first person to go out and ask for suggestions and and corrections uh and concerns and and comments once the schematic is done but i don't think that personally you know in the midst of that design process i don't think that um i would want the your quote help or collaboration of another engineer it's just the connection is too intense uh and kind of uh you know it, it's bipolar there's not really room for a, a, another member in, in that in that uh, experience so. yeah that was the uh, the biggest concern from a couple of our our listeners was usually for open source projects is 
uh, for hardware is there's one person that does like 99% of the work and sometimes, you know, that person just gets burned out and then the project kind of dies. Yeah, I mean, I think when you have, I'm typically designing smaller boards. Um, I think if you have a larger project, uh, this is where the system engineer comes into play. Um, you know, a good system engineer who can really break down the functional blocks of this design. And this has to be done carefully, but you know, someone, a good engineer can do it. And if you really break down those functional blocks in a logical and effective way, and then you carefully develop the interface document, you carefully establish the interface specifications that describe the interaction between blocks. I don't see why you can't assign those blocks to separate engineers. You have to be, uh, diligent in respecting the interface specification. You have to be diligent in um, perceiving this design as a, a part of a larger whole, you know, as a component in a system, not as your own personal uh, design. But, you know, I, I think that even small teams, even startup teams or something, if they're designing a complicated board, then this is a skill they should develop, really partitioning a design into functional blocks, uh, diligently establishing the interface specifications and then allowing separate engineers to work separately. And then you have an integration session at the end of that. So you were mentioning, yeah, yeah. You, you were mentioning in um, your, your actual design review, you were, you were saying you prefer to do kind of design reviews at the end of schematic generation. Um, I, I'm curious if that's like uh, in general, like the way you, you normally do it across the board or if that only applies to small uh, boards. Uh, the reason I'm asking is uh, just out of a personal preference from my side, I like to do design reviews, not every step of the way, but more often than, you know, once the schematic's done. Um, so I'm just curious about your personal preference on that. Well, it depends on the complexity of the project. I think that if I were in a more professional environment and uh, I were doing a project that was um, uh, that had complicated interfaces or a variety of functional blocks. You know, to me, kind of the the standard of excellence is three design reviews. Um, one is you're basically presenting your plan, you know, block diagram more or less, and then one after the schematic is done, and then one after the layout is done. Um, that's not always feasible to get that much feedback, but for me, I mean, feedback is golden, especially when I'm working with seasoned engineers. Um, so I, to me, to an extent, the more the merry. I mean, there's limits, of course, but it, there, there's so much value in putting human beings physically together in a room, you know, print out. I know it's, you know, we don't like to print things out so much these days, but I'm sorry. You print out that schematic, you know, get everyone a copy of it and you sit there and you really turn your brains on and powerful things happen when human beings get together like that and really make that effort to combine their intellectual abilities and combine all their experience and combine all their concerns and, and um, different approaches to solving problems. So, you know, like I said, higher complexity project, um, basically conceptual design review, review the block diagram, schematic design review, and layout design review. I like how you brought up uh, the, the block diagram design. And um, I think that's overlooked quite a bit in the initial hardware design for for projects um and it really helps if you get that block diagram locked down it really helps limit your scope creep later down the road absolutely absolutely i mean in, in the professional environment projects typically start with a requirements document and not to say that it doesn't evolve but 
at the same time, there's a document. And if your design fulfills that document, that's a success. If it doesn't do something that somebody wants, but that something isn't in the document, you're not held responsible for it. So like you said, this kind of gradual, oh, but this would be nice to have, and this would be good. And oh, what about this? And oh, but did you put this in there? So on and so forth. You know, well, there's value in a discussion like that, but at the same time, the engineer has to be able to point to a document or to a block diagram for a simpler design and say, look, I'm trying to design to the document. And if you really need these features, you need to talk to the program manager and have them inserted in the document. So getting, getting all official with it. Well, you know, this is, again, with a higher complexity project, these things can fall apart. I'm, you know, I'm, trying, to, I'm trying to give some advice that I think will help uh, small engineering teams or growing engineering teams to develop successfully and efficiently develop higher complexity PCBs and higher complexity systems. And the fact is it has to be organized or, or things can become very frustrating. I mean, it can even go so far as losing uh, a team member if someone just gets sick and tired of constantly redesigning a board because, you know, people always want additional features and then they start to blame it. Well, you didn't put this in there, you know, and then, well, wasn't in the, wasn't in the requirements document, you know, so it, it helps to get everybody happy. Yeah. I, 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 I would agree is on the um, I've definitely stopped working on open source projects because of scope changes. And like, I am not redoing that section of the board. I've already redone it four times already. You reach a limit. I mean, it, it <laughs> schematic design, good schematic design takes time. And you reach a limit when, uh, you know, when you constantly are redesigning something that was functional the first time, you know. Correct. Well, and, and I think that's, I think honestly, you hit it on the head with the exact answer to that question of it, it, at first, when you ask that question, how would you collaborate with multiple EEs on a single PCB? The the first thing that comes to mind is, well, how does everyone, you know, log on and actually like move things around on a schematic and PCB or the layout? And, and the answer is one guy typically does that, but everyone has their input on it and everyone does it in an organized fashion. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It could be, you know, you have a brainstorming session with all the designers and you come up with a block, you know, diagram. And then the next session you pick components that, you know, this is the kind of microcontroller we want to use. This is the accelerometer, you know, brand or whatever, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And then someone comes up with a schematic, then you review, then everyone reviews the schematic and then so on and so forth. Now that, that would be cool if GitHub had a way to handle all of that interaction too, without it getting too chaotic. Yeah, I mean, I think that with software, again, I don't have experience in software development, but I think that, you know, there are tools that allow software development to proceed fairly efficiently with a variety of people working on the same piece of code. I don't know exactly how these things work, but, you know, somehow the tasks are, are divvied up and um, the, the code modules somehow are consolidated into something i don't know that's my impression but my point is that i don't think that same model can be applied to pcb design it really i think comes down to one person who's putting the components on there double checking the footprints making the connections double checking the that the resistors have the right power rating etc but this one person needs to have a network of contacts experts etc uh, so that uh, he or she can consult and um, benefit from other people's expertise. So, so Stephen, because you've worked at other companies and designed boards, um, how, how did y'all handle projects? Uh, you know, it, it, it was similar to that. However, it was potentially a little bit, a little bit more loose. It, uh, just because 
the companies I've worked with, funny enough, um, I've worked in teams that have multiple engineers, but I've actually never worked on a team that has had more than two electrical engineers at any one point in time. Uh, plenty of other mechanical engineers and blah, blah, blah. But the, the electrical engineers seem to be, you know, a little bit more scarce. And so, you know, that person was working on, you know, 15 other projects and I was working on 15 other projects. So it, it was it was a little bit more rare to have the other electrical engineer, uh, you know, have time to really sit down and look at your stuff but we we tried to as much as possible so you know what we just described was a really in my opinion it sounds like a really like fantastic and ideal situation and it just doesn't always work out that way Mm -hmm. um so we we attempted to but it didn't always turn out that way the previous company before macrofab um i was the only engineer so it was like we came up with like a product design and then I ex- executed it, and then we went through a like iteration of each product, and that was about it. Right, right, yeah, and and sometimes sometimes that's just the way it goes. Sometimes you you kind of have to check your own work. Um, I, I have done like official reviews before. In fact, I, I had one um, one engineer hand me a, a project he was working on, and it was he was about to go to um, like first prototype, and basically i was asked to take as long as it took and it took three days but i went part by part checked every footprint checked every data sheet checked every piece of his design and yeah it was it was it was three almost three full days of of work looking at it but uh and i found a couple of things too and it was it, you know there was a few things to change um some some things that were design things some things that were just like oops you chose chose the wrong footprint here or whatnot uh, so it's, it, it, it is really valuable um if you get the chance to do that. Cool. You got anything else, uh, Robert, to add to open source? Um, no, I mean, I, I think that uh, again, it's, it's something that we all need to be aware of and that, um, including corporations and, um, we need to consider what we can do, uh, writers, readers, corporations, manufacturers, et cetera, what we can do, uh, to make sure that high quality knowledge is available to people everywhere, but at the same time that uh, we can maintain financial stability because this is how high quality material is produced. You know, people need to to live and, and eat and have a house to live in. Um, so actually I'm going to add another question here is um, what, what is the best thing one of our listeners can do to help open source? Like just in general, I think it really depends on, you know, your position in in the movement, your position in the field. Um, uh, you know, if you're a, a skilled professional or an advanced student, well, then you have knowledge uh, which can be made available. Uh, there might be various ways to monetize that. And I'm not an expert in that field. But but the point is that we don't we don't want the monetization to to seriously interfere uh, with someone's ability um, to make this knowledge available and to help other people to, to, to spark innovation. You know, it's, it's kind of like how fire spreads, you know, is that innovation begins somewhere, but by providing knowledge, you can help to spark innovation, uh, from other people. And, and so, um, again, if you're a professional, if you have uh, special skills or advanced knowledge, well, then you find ways to make that available while also maintaining, uh, you know, maintaining your the income you need, or you know, make sure you have time for leisure activities as well. <laughs> you know, these people they go to work a nine to five job and then spend all night 
you know, writing their blog or developing a website. It's like, well, we need to have balance here, you know, because that's 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 a recipe for burnout, you know, and it's uh, human beings don't work that way. So we need to be able to find balance between work and recreation and enjoying life, but also being willing to do work that doesn't produce immediate remuneration in terms of uh, financial resources. Um, if you're still more on the learning side, you know, you're a, a undergrad student or just a hobbyist or a young engineer that maybe didn't get a really practical uh, education. And I understand that completely. You come out of college with a lot of theoretical knowledge, but don't know how to design a circuit. Um, well, you uh, don't be afraid to access to make use of that open source knowledge, which is available on All About Circuits, of course, is what I'm familiar with, but there are a wide variety of websites that make this knowledge available. And furthermore, to interact, you know, be a member of the community. Don't, you don't have to just read the article and, and then be done with it. You know, there's, there are forums, there's a, a, you know, you can comment on the article, you can request information, you can uh, request to become a contributor and write articles about whatever you happen to have expertise in. So it's, it's a matter of, uh, participating in this open source material, not just by reading, but also by commenting, by contributing, by becoming a member, an active member of the community. How about this? We'll, we'll actually just jump to this one. Is um, So if you're designing a product, um, does this doesn't have to be open source or related or not, but does, uh, do, you, do you do it form following function or function following form? Basically, like, do you find how you want the product to look first like the case and how someone uses it and or is it the other way around well obviously it depends on the on the requirements of the project and you know maybe on how much time i have available or what resources i'm working with but in general you know i'm kind of a you know i'm kind of a, a hardliner when it comes to electrical integrity and good design practices um so i generally you know i'm going to design a schematic uh according to my ideas about good design practices about um robust design and uh and then when i lay out a board you know it's generally going to follow follow the electrons so to speak you know is that i'm <laughs> i'm i'm looking at the the performance characteristics of the board i'm looking at what's going to maximize my single signal integrity i'm looking at what's going to provide low impedance pathways what's going to provide a good ground return uh, what's going to provi provide clean grounds, you know, for my analog and digital circuitry. And so you know, I generally let the electronics kind of guide me. I, I, I let the I, I let the electronic um, concepts and 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 needs drive the design. And, you know, I might adjust at the end, especially if there's a certain form factor I have to meet. But again, if I'm going to go to the trouble to design a circuit board, manufacture it, assemble it one way or another, um, you know, I really believe in doing whatever I can to maximize signal integrity, maximize reliability. Um, so that tends to be my emphasis. That tends to be what drives uh, the design. Yeah, th this this reminds me a lot of, uh, I can't remember which iPhone it was, but it was like the iPhone 7 or 6, where they actually had to modify one of the BGA packages by cutting out a corner <laughs> so they could fit a capacitor. And it's like, that's really one of those okay, they're really going for the form because they didn't, you know, uh, build their PCB large enough for that to fit otherwise. Yeah, I mean, these things happen. <laughs> these things happen, right? But I think it's ideal when, uh, you know, or at least the better approach 
eliminates uh, situations like that mm-hmm. whenever possible. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I typically will do the schematic and then do a rough layout and then be like, okay, what do I kind of want this thing to look like in the end? And then find an enclosure or get something custom. I'm, I'm like, okay, I can, this product can use a custom enclosure because the margin's high enough and stuff like that. Um, the best option is just to make it the best performing board and then just 3D print a custom enclosure. Right. That's <laughs> right. I, yes. <laughs> And that might work for a one-off thing, Correct. but for you know thousands. Well, and and at the same time, I think we have to recognize that maximizing performance and maximizing signal integrity isn't always the first priority. I mean, as an engineer, uh, especially an engineer engineer dedicated education, um, you know that's typically my priority. But if I were working for an engineering company designing consumer electronics that were basically designed to be replaced after a year. It has to look flashy or it has to fit in your pocket or what have you. Well, the fact is that signal integrity and and um, high frequency performance and what have you isn't always the first priority. And so, it, you know, it depends on it depends on what the people in charge are saying. Yeah, it's um, it, it also reminds me a lot of uh, the term mutzing, which is basically going through your product and removing parts that, you know, it, that, that they're not required to make your product work. Um, I don't know if y'all know what the background from that term is. No, no. Yeah, yeah. The guy who who went and popped off bypass caps. No, this is this is older than that. This is in back in the forties and fifties with television receivers, and so the the engineers would design a TV that would work everywhere. Like, so it would work really far away from tele uh, from the broadcast stations. Well, most people live in the cities and they have a really strong signal. And so he would just go through and just remove all the parts that weren't really necessary. If the TV was supposed to stay inside, you know, the city. Um, so yeah, his name was uh madman mutts. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. I, I could imagine that, you know, well, the fact is there often are a lot of components on a, on a board that are not strictly necessary. You know, they're there to make the board more reliable or just to, you know, cover unforeseeable circumstances or whatever. But uh, you know, if you have to make it fit in a small enclosure, or you have to save every penny. Every penny, inevitably, some of those will be eliminated. And well, that's that's the reality of engineering. And um, you know, well, it's just different. Well, design and, and you know what that that actually that actually goes back to what you were saying earlier with the uh, um, you know, a lot of times the engineer will just get a spec sheet of here's what the design needs to do. Uh, and sometimes that spec sheet will give you the information you need to know to give you like just to be just good enough engineering, you know, uh, it, it might say, Hey, yeah, we need a really fantastic TV, but it only needs to work in the city, you know? Uh, and that, and that should give you enough information such that you don't have to design the most amazing thing on earth. It's just good enough. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's like the the famous saying is like one word to describe engineering. Good enough. (laughs) (laughs) I I think it's very true. I mean, you can always make a design more robust. You can always add features. At some point, you have to stop and say, okay, what does this thing really need to do? And that's what you design to. Yeah. Right, right. We were actually talking about it earlier today at work. Uh, it, engineering is just educated compromises. Yeah. Just a whole bunch of them. <laughs> I like that a lot. Yeah, it's a good one. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Um, so, Robert, 
What is your favorite article that you wrote for All About Circuits and why? Oh, it's a tough one. I've, I've written many. Um, I think that one of the most popular... How about one that you just remember? Well, I think that one of... One of <laughs> <laughs> let's see if I can... Uh, let's see here. I'm sure I remember at least one of them. Um, I think that one of the most popular also happens to be one of my favorites, which is actually a series that I wrote on... Uh, it's called the Clean Power Series. And the first two articles are about... Uh, decoupling capacitors essentially and um i uh i'm one of these people who I'm, I'm not satisfied if i don't understand something you know everybody knows how to put a 0.1 microfarad capacitor you know next to their microcontroller okay fine but you know you have to go deeper and i i'm just not satisfied why <laughs> 0.1 microfarad what's that <laughs> Oh, I said, why 0.1 microfarad? No, exactly. And, and the article talks about that, it talks about the value. It talks about, you know, the case size, uh, or at least in one of the articles in the series. You know, it, in, in other words, it, it essentially says to the reader, okay, I know that you know you're supposed to do this, but what's really happening? Why is it necessary? How do you optimize a decoupling design? You know, then the, the, the third and fourth article in the series, if I recall correctly, are about um, ferrite beads and, you know, the, the sort of complementary role of ferrite beads in providing clean power to your integrated circuits. Um, and again, I think those articles are all kind of emblematic of, of what I enjoy the most, the most, which is really penetrating into the heart of the matter, really going deep into the theory, into the conceptual framework, into the, uh, the, the real engineering knowledge, you know, the things we learn in school to an extent, but then applied, applied um, uh, manifested in coherent form so that we're, we're, we're uh, combining practical techniques with theoretical knowledge in a way that actually makes our designs better, more robust, higher performance, whatever. So, And I, I think I have a variety of articles like that, but that's what comes to mind is um, you know, the Clean Power Series, taking something as universal as a decoupling capacitor, but really digging deep. What is this about? What are the underlying concepts? Why do we do this? How do we optimize it? You have anything, Stephen? Uh, I'm gonna have to go read that series. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, no. It's it's funny. We 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 got an intern at work. Um, uh, he just started, I think, last week. And uh, today, he and I were going over bypass caps, and uh, he he didn't really. He, he's just a junior in now in uh, electrical engineering and so like this is there sort of a new concept for him so i'm, I'm totally going to send him the a link to this now that's great cool so um one another thing robert is what's your favorite microcontroller slash dev board slash tool chain well i uh, i think to an extent i i'm a little bit i don't know if it's it's a bias i don't know how to describe it but somehow i ended up using silicon labs for almost everything Oh, yeah. That's my favorite right now. Oh, is it really? Well, there you go. I, I don't know. In my experience, and maybe this is just, again, a biased perception, but it seems to me that professional engineers often favor Silicon Labs devices, whereas they're much less known among hobbyists or younger students. I'm not sure if it's just a marketing thing or maybe maybe they cost more, um, in, at least you know in small quantities or something. I don't know. But I've been using them for a long time, and I find that they're... Their data sheets are very clearly written and uh, have good diagrams and are accurate. I find that the chips are reliable, that they're high quality, that they, they have a wide variety of, uh, of devices that offer a different collection of features. 
I guess I think maybe initially Silicon Labs started as um, uh, started by really emphasizing the mixed signal aspect mm-hmm. of microcontrollers. Now I think it's very common, but maybe originally I wasn't really in the game back then. Maybe originally it was more unusual. And that's another reason why I became uh, kind of connected with Silicon Labs is because as you know, w- when I first entered the engineering world, I was doing mixed signal basically everything, you know, analog digital conversion. And so I wanted microcontrollers that could do all these things, um, you know, that could do the uh, digital analog conversion, analog digital conversion, comparators, what have you. Uh, so then I, but as I continued to use them, I was more and more pleased with the quality of the chips, with the reliability, with, um, uh, with the, the, the wide variety of features. And then on top of that, the development boards were widely available. Even when I was working uh, in the professional world, we would use their development boards um, quite extensively. So the development boards are widely available, reasonably priced. And then the tool chain, I've always found it to be adequate. The, you know, the newest one, which is Simplicity Studio. Sometimes uh, I'm kind of more, I'm kind of old school. I just appreciate a more bare bones approach. I mean, I like, you know, configuration tools that help you configure the hardware, you know, that's convenient if, as long as they work, which not always, but usually they do. I mean, Silicon Labs, I think is very reliable, but <laughs> I, I know what you're saying. You can't, you, you know, you have to be careful. You have to, you have to double check, but yep. Um, so I found the tool chain to be very effective, easy to use, not bloated. Um, so I, what can I say? I, I, I've, I've really, I, I'm afraid I've kind of given up on branching out into other manufacturers. I mean, I've used Atmel. Um, I think I've used something else, but but honestly, I, I've just kind of given up. I'm so satisfied with Silicon Labs that, and I don't, I, you know, I'm getting older. I don't want to have to relearn, you know, all the details of the hardware and the interfaces and, you know, the, uh, you know, getting the oscillator started properly or whatever. It's just, I know how, I know how to use the Silicon Labs devices. I know how they work. I've, I've, you know, basically worked out all the, uh, the bugs and the hardware design mistakes. And so I, uh, I basically use them all the time now. There's something to say about, um, not having to relearn the basics between projects for the that kind of stuff. Yeah. I mean, it, I, honestly, it scares me. I, the, the, you know, I have this kind of fear that I'm going to get some contract from someone who's going to mandate that I use Atmel or that I use, I don't know, who else? Is it? A PIC-16. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, give me the exact part number. <laughs> Parker hates And picks. I'm going to break out in a cold sweat <laughs> because how many hours am I going to have to spend reviewing the details and looking at all the little uh, intricacies of the, the low-level hardware and how to configure the hardware? And then, of course, the worst-case scenario is that I have some elusive bug and, you know, with Silicon Labs, it still happens sometimes, but uh, it usually is resolved fairly quickly because I have probably run across this same bug, you know, previously in my engineering uh, career. But if I'm using a new microcontroller, who knows, maybe I'll lose a day trying to track down some bug or some, you know, you know uh, improperly configured hardware peripheral or whatever. And I, I don't want to spend my time that way. All right. One last question. Robert. Yep. You ready for it? The complete departure from everything else too is uh where do you see EDA tools? So those are tools that you design your circuit boards in uh in five years. How are they gonna change? And actually what EDA tool that you you do you like to use? 
I use dip trays. And which one do you hate the most? Uh, I'll get to that. <laughs> um, oh, I oh use, dip trays. I use dip trays. Did I hear that? Did I hear that right? Yeah, you have. You oh have a yeah. On the other end of the channel. Now. I it. Oh, dip trays is amazing. Anybody, any engineer <laughs> that comes anywhere near me asking about development tools, I will gladly speak for half an hour about the virtues of dip trays. Um, I, <laughs> Hell yeah. I am almost beyond belief that it's not more well known. And it, I, I feel like some people will complain that it's not free and say, I'm sorry, it's not free. But, you know, I pay, I just bought an $80 pair of shoes. Okay. I'm willing to pay $80 for a pair of shoes. It's going to last me a few years. You'd think that I'd be willing to pay $80 for a PCB uh, schematic, uh, for a schematic and PCB layout tool that I can use basically indefinitely and that is very sophisticated and reliable and easy to use and so intuitive. Um, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it is well known, but it seems to me that it's not. And I think that's a sad thing because they're selling an excellent product at a very reasonable price. And it's extremely intuitive, which for me is, is virtue number one, because I hate reading, looking at tutorials. I hate reading manuals. I hate, you know, searching around, trying to figure out how to make a new footprint or whatever. It's intuitive. It's reliable. It has the features that I need. Um, and I, I really, I, I commend the, uh, the designers. I think they made an excellent product. It, and it uses the left click button. Which that's kind of nice. Yeah, I mean, I I think maybe some people consider the interface to be a little bit awkward. I don't know. You can always design something a different way and call it better. But to me, what they have is totally functional, and um, so anyway, it's good enough. Good. It's I would say it's it's, it's better than good enough. I think they really. <laughs> I think they went. I, I think you're getting much more value than you're paying for. That's. I think the price is really reasonable. But I think even on top of that you're getting much more than you're paying for. Um, least favorite. Uh, I think I've used a few that I don't like so much, but here, here's the irony is that the only CAD tool that I've attempted to use and basically walked away from the computer and discussed, you know, figuratively speaking was Eagle. <laughs> and I just find this comical because it seems like Eagle is totally rooted in, in the, in, you know, the, the innovator community and the hobbyist community and the student community. And I honestly am at a loss as to why I opened that program out. Okay. Everyone uses Eagle. I'm just going to use Eagle. And it's not even free anymore for commercial use. I don't know if it ever was actually, but the point is I was amazed at how non-intuitive it was. I mean, I was, I'm, was a fairly seasoned engineer. I couldn't figure out how to use the thing. Um, so I'm not saying it's impossible. I'm sure that if I read about and use the tutorials whatever but to me the interface was not intuitive and it, it was not natural um and i didn't i didn't like the appearance of it so I, I i have to admit that my least favorite is is eagle well robert we just can't be friends anymore i i this is what i assumed would happen <laughs> I, I i i accept this i needed to speak the truth but if you don't want to talk to me anymore i understand no, that's fine. That's actually that's actually the biggest complaint I hear about Eagle is is that. But I mean, Eagle was the first uh, professional, I guess in quotes, EDA tool I ever used, and like I got it right away. Okay. Uh, I think it's just because I came from an old school CAD background, and that's what Eagle is. So, you know, maybe that's what it is because uh, you know 
most of my design experience, my initial design experience was within a large company and we had advanced tools. I mean, I think I used PCAD originally and then later DX designer or maybe another, maybe a third one. I can't even remember, but the point is these were very expensive tools, but they were high quality. I mean, it was intuitive. The interface was pleasant to look at. So that was my background. And I think that dip trace for me was basically a very affordable version of those advanced tools that I used when I was working for a corporation. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be that I just don't have the background and the experience necessary to readily learn a tool like Eagle. And I, I readily admit it could be my, the problem could be mine. It could be my defects, not the software. It's just, but that's the fact is that I tried it and I couldn't use it. No, it's, it's, I've tried using DipTrace and KiCad and I can't wrap my head around how they do their workflows i'm like why is this like this so it's it's a matter of your your background your experience right i mean that's the bottom line is that it's what are you comfortable with what are you accustomed to and so exactly you're you're my favorite guest robert by the way (laughs) and i don't i just wanted to be known i pay for dip trays i've never asked for anything for free i you know there's there's no advertising relationship here i just i think that when people make an excellent product and sell it at a good price they should be recognized right and um amen where do you see eda tools in five years i guess where do you see dip trace in five years well this is where i guess it gets a little bit controversial honestly i'd like to see the I'd like to in five years. I'd like to see CAD tools doing exactly what they're doing today, um, in the sense that I don't want. I call it brain replacement software, and I think that um, cogitation, intellectual exertion, is something that is satisfying to the human soul. It's satisfying in the in the context of the human experience, in the conque- in, in in the quest to achieve something, to design something. Um, there is a place for tools. There's a place for things like MATLAB, you know, especially people like me who can't fathom advanced mathematics. Okay. I'm glad that MATLAB is there, but we have to find a balance. Uh, you know, we have to find a balance with respect to maintaining, uh, the opportunity uh, maintaining the need to exert ourselves intellectually to still maintain an, an active role in the design process. Um, and even, you know, right now, uh, you know, I don't use auto route. I don't use automatic component placement. I, I just, I don't think that they're really that effective, honestly, but that's my opinion. But even if they were, I wouldn't use them. I don't want to because it takes me out of the design process. It, it, and so maybe you can, maybe it, it's, it's okay to use an auto route. Maybe the board will work, but what are the unintended consequences? What are the secondary consequences of withdrawing intellectually from that design task. And in my opinion, it's kind of a ripple effect. You never know how the overall design might be influenced by the fact that you are not staring, you know, with your eyes starting to water and, you know, uh, getting a headache, staring at the computer screen, doing every single trace, optimizing every corner, uh, you know, checking the, the, the trace separation, looking at the width, uh, trying to even just make the board look more elegant or make the board look neater. You know, I think that the engineer needs to needs to draw a line and say, okay, at this point, I am going to do this myself. I'm going to engage the mind, and uh, I'm going to tackle this task. So, on again, to answer your question, what DivTrace does for me right now and other tools as well is exactly 
what I want it to do, or actually does more than I want it to do, but I can ignore those features. Um, and I want it to stay that way. I don't want it to change. I want to be the driver in this design process. The tool is there to be exactly that, a tool. You know, I pick up a hammer. I don't expect it to build a house for me, but I can't hammer that nail myself. I cannot do it. But all I need is a hammer, hammer and a saw, and I can build a house. Um, I want that software tool to be a tool, not something that removes me, removes me intellectually from the design process any more than it has to. Do you have anything else, Stephen? That was very elegant. Oh, you want to sign us out? Yeah, sure. I think uh, (laughs) we're done for now. That was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. I was your guest, Robert Keim. And we were your hosts, Parker Dillon. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy. See ya. Thank you, yes you, our listener, for downloading our show. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic that you want Stephen and I to discuss, tweet us at Macrofab or email us at podcast at macrofab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel where we talk about open source projects all the time. If you're not subscribed to that podcast yet, click that subscribe button. That way you get the latest MEP episode right when it releases. And please review us wherever you listen as it helps the show stay visible and helps new listeners find us.